The following contains content that is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. The Devil and Mrs. Tremblay Written by Craig Moody Narrated by Jessica Caruso Eleven. I felt a bit of surrender after that day. I no longer resisted Edgar. I fed the babies as needed. In my own way, I felt a slight connection to them, but never motherly, never warm and loving. I felt a sense of duty, obligation. I was never pleased nor happy when the small babies were clamped to my breast, but it did make me feel wanted and needed, not so much by the helpless babies, but by Edgar. He was meticulous and devoted in his care, never faltering, no wavering. My jealousy soon faded to acceptance, and as spring continued, I had completely submitted to my purpose. The neighbors and church folk had stopped visiting once I resumed cooking. Edgar and I had begun to live a quiet, dutiful existence. Everything revolved around the care of the babies. Nothing mattered more. Nothing was more important. I had started to wonder what we would do once the upcoming summer ended and the harvest time neared. The land surrounding the house was either dead or overgrown. The earth was as dry as a long-buried chicken bone. Not a single crop was produced or maintained. Edgar rarely ventured outside, even when the winter had long faded to the warm breezes of spring. He stopped seeking a farmhand, and he stopped speaking of New Mexico. We both did. A strange, foreboding sense of duty overtook our lives. We did nothing but diligently tend to the twins. One night in early April... I woke to find Edgar standing and staring out the bedroom window. I was silent as I crept from the bed and to his side. As though in a trance, he didn't notice me as I slowly approached. I stood directly beside him, following his gaze out into the darkness. It took several long seconds, but eventually my eyes focused in on the figure. Massive and still, standing just beyond the end of the yard where the tilled soil usually harbored wheat, tobacco, corn, or greens. Now, the earth was bare and barren, open for as far as the eyes could see. The figure tilted its head, causing Edgar to snap from his thoughts and back into the present moment. What's the matter? He croaked, his face only inches from mine. I know you see him, Edgar, I answered immediately, keeping my eyes fixed on the figure. See what? He asked, never turning his face away from me. The devil, I stated plainly. He's just there, just to the right of the old oakwood tree, right where the yard meets the fields. Edgar remained quiet for a long while before finally moving to embrace me. Let's get back to bed, he whispered, kissing my cheek. 
Edgar, please, I pleaded. Please tell me you see him. Edgar just held me, his embrace tightening slightly. Edgar? Come, he cooed. Let's get back in bed. I spent the rest of that night deeply questioning my sanity. Perhaps Edgar was right. Perhaps it would be best for me to follow Dr. Johnson's suggestion of checking into the state hospital. They could provide me better care. Maybe they could alleviate some of what I was experiencing. My anger, frustration, disappointment, rage, and boredom had now surrendered to worry and fright. How long would it be before I lost my mind completely? It stormed the next day. A powerful thunderstorm that shook the house and battered the farmland. A year ago, Edgar would have been dancing around the house like a child on Christmas, absolutely elated by the rain. But now, he simply stood on the front porch. The infant boy in his arms, both watching the downpour as it moved its curtains of water over the earth. I tended to the girl. Bella, a name I still despised. Oddly, Edgar never spoke of the boy's name and I never asked. Bella adjusted herself in the bassinet, slowly drifting off to sleep. I moved into the kitchen and struggled to arrange enough food for supper. There was nothing left but a few slices of dried meat, some stale bread, some of it molded, and a hard block of cheese. I sighed and walked to join Edgar on the front porch. We need food, Edgar, I said as I stood next to him just above the front porch steps, the grand symphony of rain parading its ballet before our watchful eyes. Even the boy was fixated on it. You could see the sheets of liquid waver in his dark-eyed stare. For a moment I felt a bit of fear while just looking at the child. Something about the intensity of his eyes was frightening, yet familiar. I had seen that look before. It'll be handled, Edgar answered, never moving his eyes away from the rain. By who? I asked, carefully watching his face. It'll be provided. I didn't know what that meant, and I didn't bother to question it. I simply returned to the kitchen and did the best I could with the measly portions of food we had left. As promised, food was provided. I wasn't sure by who. The next morning, the entire kitchen table was covered with bushels of fresh vegetables, canned goods, and satchels of salted meats. I stored everything and managed to prepare the first hearty meal we had in at least a week or more. I decided it was best not to ask where everything had come from. I assumed it was merely more charitable donations arranged by the neighbors, Brother Tom or Dr. Johnson. I was surprised Edgar wasn't embarrassed by the fact that we remained a sad charity case in a community of equally struggling people. The Edgar of old would have been furious at our present circumstances. He would have done everything in his power to provide. 
He would be livid at the sight of donations from other farm folk. But this Edgar, the one who lived to serve two infants, merely acknowledged that the lot had arrived and never mentioned it again. For whatever reason, I just went along with his silence and never said a word about it. A week later, Bella came down with a terrible fever. She burned so intensely, it felt like your own flesh would be singed by just touching hers. I found myself worrying about her. The first true maternal feeling I felt toward one of the babies. Edgar wasn't worried. Not at all. I begged him to call Madison Jenkins the county midwife. That won't be necessary, Edith. Just stop worrying. But she's burning alive, Edgar. Feel her. Touch her skin. I know, Edith. Just calm down. Everything will be fine. I didn't know what to think. A month ago, I was threatening to drown the babies, but now I found myself terrified and alarmed by Edgar's aloofness to what I knew was a very serious matter. I went to the backyard water pump and filled a bucket with the cool water of the underground well. I undressed Bella and dipped her into the clear liquid. She screamed and cried the moment the water touched her. Please, Edgar, I cried. Please call Madison. Edgar just stared. The boy perched firmly in his arms. My heart skipped a beat when I realized the baby was staring right at me, its wide, dark glare focused intently on my face. For a moment, I felt lost in its gaze. It took me a second to refocus on the fevered child in my hands. Edgar! To my complete shock, Edgar just turned and walked away. I was all alone with a very ill, bellowing baby. I lowered her into the bassinet and darted to the telephone. I scoured the small table the black rotary machine sat upon. Finally, I located the tiny scrap of yellow paper that contained Madison's telephone number. I lifted the receiver and started to dial. Silence. There was no dial tone. The line was dead. Edgar, I cried. The telephone ain't working. No reply. Edgar! Bella screamed from the bassinet, her tiny voice shrill and pained. I felt myself empathizing with the poor girl's fear and misery. I just knew she was burning alive inside. I dashed into the kitchen. No, Edgar. I moved to the spare bedroom, Joe's old room. No, Edgar. I moved back to the living room and up the staircase. The bedroom door was closed. I burst through it. There was Edgar, holding the boy, both staring out the window. Edgar, I scoffed. What are you doing? That poor child is almost on fire with fever. Edgar didn't say a word. Edgar? I screamed, tears now forming on the rims of each of my lower eyelids. It's her time, Edith. Edgar mumbled from the window. It's what she came here for. 
I shook my head in complete disbelief. What are you talking about? In Edgar's arms, the boy turned his head to glare at me. In the distance, I could see no white. His eyes looked completely black. I gasped. I felt my heart pulsing in my ears as I clumsily descended the stairs and back to the bassinet. Poor Bella had cried herself hoarse. Her screaming was now nothing more than a sound-exhausted gasp. I scooped her into my arms and ran out the front screen door. My bare feet smashed into the rain-soaked dirt, now supping mud, and pounded over the distance of the long, winding dirt driveway that would lead me to the main road. I ran and ran until I found myself on the Jefferson's front porch. I could barely see. My eyes filled with tears and rain as I pounded my free fist over the closed front door. Silence. No answer. Bill! Molly! Nothing. I wiped my eyes and moved to the nearest window. Everything inside was gone. Nothing remained but a few pieces of furniture, shreds of cloth, and various piles of debris. They were gone. Moved. I couldn't believe it. No! (laughs) I heard myself scream, the heaving infant in my arms squirming and burning. Molly! (laughs) I ran to another window. I could see far better now. I focused on the abandoned kitchen table, void of anything but a single piece of paper. A card. A tarot card. I squinted, forcing my vision to peer through the water that continued to drip down my face. It was the devil tarot card. I returned to our house and struggled to locate Edgar's truck keys. I had to do something. I had to go somewhere and get help for this poor baby. I searched and searched but could never locate the keys. They were nowhere to be found. I had no other choice but to ask Edgar. Where are the keys to the truck? I huffed, my lungs aching from all the non-stop running. This had been the most physical activity I had endured in months. Gone. He finally whispered, his eyes still locked out the window. What do you mean, gone? I shouted. We can't drive nowhere without him. It's our only vehicle. Edgar, where are the keys? For a split second, my voice seemed to free him from whatever sort of dreamlike state he was in. He shook his head and blinked in my direction. Again, the tiny baby in his arms remained silent and staring, its eyes as black as night. Edith? Edgar whispered. What? Just as quickly as it had disappeared, the same frozen glare oozed over his expression. He was gone again. What frightened me most of all was that I had seen that very same expression before, locked over my own face, staring back at me in the mirror for weeks prior to the pregnancy and beyond.
the same trance-like state that had befallen me on far more than one occasion, now gripped Edgar. This wasn't madness or mania. This was something sinister. Something evil. I bolted back down the stairs and to the now-sleeping baby. I lifted her gently and tried to wake her. She was still breathing, but she wouldn't wake. She was completely unconscious. No, I whispered. I lifted my eyes to the living room window. There, like a still and waiting beacon, was the tractor, just sitting where it had been abandoned the previous fall. I clutched Bella to my chest and ran for the rusted red machine. I struggled to climb the massive tire to reach the seat. The baby in my arms left me reliant on just one arm. Finally, I threw my legs over the broad black leather seat and gripped the giant steering wheel. I shouted in triumph as my hands located the dangling key still in place inside the ignition. It took several attempts, but eventually the massive piece of equipment fired to life, coughing and groaning its weary strength to the voice of the rattling muffler. I tossed it into gear, my head bobbing back as the giant tires lurched forward and the tractor began moving over the wet soil. I cradled Bella in one arm and worked to steer with the other. I mashed the gas pedal as low as it would go, causing the mammoth machinery to rev and screech. We weren't moving very quickly, but we were still moving. I turned the large round steering wheel until the tractor smashed its monster rubber tires over the main pathway that led to and from the house. I locked my eyes on the property line, intent on reaching the main road as soon as possible. It was then that I felt something whiz past my head. At first, I didn't think much of it. I actually thought it might have been a bird, but when the second bullet nearly grazed my ear, I knew what was happening. I ducked my head but kept my eyes locked on the destination, the road. We had to make it to the road. Once on the road, there was a chance a passing vehicle would see us. I could then flag someone down and beg them to drive us to Dr. Johnson. Zoom. Another bullet nearly struck the side of my head. My heart was pounding so loudly in my ears it easily overpowered the roar and growl of the tractor engine. Then it hit me. A, a bullet. It didn't hurt at first. In fact, it didn't feel any pain until moments, perhaps many minutes later. At first, I only felt the pressure on the back of my arm. It felt like someone was sitting behind me, gripping my arm in place, holding it down so I was unable to steer. It wasn't until I saw blood that I realized what had happened. Still, I focused on the road. I kept my foot firmly pressed against the large gas pedal. Shooting me didn't stop us, but the bullet that penetrated the engine certainly did. The tractor sputtered and smoked as it succumbed to its injury. Gasoline and oil flowed like fresh blood from the large air vents. It didn't take much more than a few seconds for the tractor to stop moving. I looked down. Bella was still unconscious. Her face was bright red. My heart sank at the sight. I had no other choice but to get off the tractor and run. Run anywhere, anywhere but back to the house. 
The moment I stepped foot on the wet ground, my ankles sank into the deep mud of the field. The vast and relentless thunderstorm had flooded the stark, dry earth of the forgotten crops. I nearly dropped the infant as I struggled to move. Plop, plop. Giant, sluggish step after slow, determined step slothfully edged me toward the property line. It was within reach. My arm was numb. I could feel the blood trickling down my skin. I didn't care. I could feel the burning infant against my chest. I had to save her. I had to find help. I was so focused on the main road that I hadn't heard Edgar approach. I screamed as he grabbed Bella, snatching her from my grasp. He didn't say a word. He simply turned around and headed back toward the house. Edgar! I cried. Please, Edgar, let me take her somewhere. Let me get her help. He didn't respond. He simply moved over the wet ground with focus and ease. The depth of the mud didn't appear to affect him at all. Meanwhile, I plopped behind him, falling over more than once, struggling to catch up. By the time I reached the front porch, my arms burned and ached something terrible. I had to sit on my knees for several minutes, determined to catch my breath. Edgar had already returned inside the house. It wasn't until I climbed the four porch steps and opened the front screen door that I realized he had locked the main door. We hadn't closed that door in years, a decade or more. Yet now, it prevented me from entering my own home. I plunked back down into the mud and rounded the side of the house toward the backyard. I reached the back door, tossed open the screen door, and fiddled with the main door's knob. It, too, like the front door, was never closed. Yet now, it was locked and bolted shut. I had no other way inside the house. Then I remembered the storm cellar. The house had an underground storm cellar. It was accessible from the outside and had a tiny wooden staircase that led to a floor hatch that would lead me inside the house. The hatch was in the closet of the room Joe had stayed in. My arm burned and ached as I ran toward the cellar door. I hadn't been in the cellar in years. Edgar kept it stocked with grain, equipment, supplies, and other uninteresting farm essentials. He always told me not to go down there. In fact, he kept it locked most of the time. When storms threatened, tornadoes even, we would just stay in the house. I often forgot we had a cellar. As feared, the wooden doors were locked by a rusted snake-like chain and massive lock. I stared for a moment, unsure of what to do. I darted my eyes in every direction, searching for something, anything that could be used to break the chain. Nothing. I took a deep breath and moved toward the silo. I hadn't been in there since the days Joe had slept there. I passed it and continued to trek through the mud toward the shed, another place Edgar had forbidden me to enter. As with the cellar, I had no interest in Edgar's collection of tools and miscellaneous farm supplies, so I had obeyed his command and never even thought to step foot in either place.
I honestly could not remember the last time I was inside the walls of either one. The shed door was open, so I entered with ease. Inside was every tool known to man. I grabbed a hammer and an axe and trudged back through the mud toward the cellar door. Ping. Ping. The hammer didn't do a thing as I used my injured arm to wield the tool against the chain. I switched to the axe and worked tirelessly to muster enough strength to break the lock, but to no avail. I wasn't strong enough. I sighed and took a moment to catch my exerted breath. I tipped my head back to suck in a massive nose full of air, opening my eyes to see the bedroom window above. There was Edgar, the infant boy in his arms. Both were staring down at me. Edgar's stare was blank and frozen, but his eyes still their familiar green. The baby's eyes, however, were shadowed and black, much like the eyes I had seen in the face of the devil. Then, just as with the devil, the eyes glowed a fiery red, the intensity so strong I could feel heat on my face. Oh my god! I heard myself gasp. With a fear so strong and powerful, I lifted the axe with both arms, the weight of the heavy object causing my injured arm to quiver and convulse. I could feel the bullet lodge deep in the muscles, seeming to scrape the bone. I screamed as every ounce of energy within my being forced the axe toward the cellar door. The sound of metal and wood echoed through my brain. I stood still for several seconds before my eyes cleared, and I could see that the chain had been broken. It lay in a crumpled heap beneath the edge of the massive wooden cellar doors. I dropped the axe and myself onto the doors. I mustered whatever feeble strength I had left to lift the heavy, croaking door high enough to slip beneath. My body rolled and tumbled several feet before I landed on the ground. The cellar was cool and damp. There was a single beam of light filtering in from an overhead vent. I coughed and gagged, my face and mouth covered in both dried dirt and wet mud. I stood to my feet and worked to focus my eyes. The first coffin didn't stand out to me. I hardly noticed it. But it was the second and third that really vied for my attention. As my vision slowly cleared to the faint light of the space around me, my eyes trailed over the same carved symbol over and over. A star within a circle. I recognized it immediately. I had seen it several times before. Etched into the chest of the illustrated devil on Molly's favored tarot card. Hi, I'm Craig Moody, and I want to thank you for listening to Craig Moody's Novel Bites. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please like, follow, and subscribe to this podcast to be notified when the latest episodes are released. Print and digital editions of my previous titles are available through all major retailers. For more information or for links to my social media, please visit Craig 
www.dashmoody.com. Until next time.